0: You can use words to create impressions. You can use words to contradict norms. You can ask questions that become abstractions or tell a narrative. You can do
1: all of this. We're all artists. We all create things that are unique to us and what we bring to those solutions that we create.
2: From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. From projects to products, inspirations, and more, join us each episode as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. This season, we're exploring the theme of our future city. We'll discuss how New York is being revitalized, reinvented, and rediscovered through design. Design is a great shapeshifter. It could be as large as the Empire State Building or as small as a thumbtack. But design is also a form of communication. A thoughtfully crafted idea come to life or the manifestation of an emotion. Design can speak to you without uttering a word. This is the effect of visual design. This episode, we will explore visual design and its impact in our world with two truly extraordinary guests, Paula Scher and Julian Alexander, who also participated in this year's edition of NYC by Designs, an ode to New York City's citywide poster exhibition. Listen in as we dive into the inspiration behind their poster designs and consider how visual design can expand our imaginations Help us address social issues and create a future we can dream of. I'm so excited to welcome our first guest, Paula Scher, to the podcast. Paula Scher is simply a legend, and in my opinion, the greatest living designer working today. She is responsible for shaping the brand identities of so many of New York's most famous institutions, including the Museum of Modern Art, the New York City Ballet, and the Public Theater. She's a partner in the New York office of Pentagram and has been awarded countless accolades for her contributions to the design industry, including the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award, the AIGA Lifetime Achievement Medal, and the Chrysler Award for Innovation in Design, among many, many others. Paula, thank you so much for being here. It is so wonderful to be talking with you again. Thanks, Debbie. Paula, you've said that as a child... You failed at everything but art, and you stated, first I was too scrawny, then I was too fat. My hair was never right, and I was never popular. But as the school artist, I was okay. That was the first place where I felt like I actually belonged. Paula, did that feel like magic to you, to be able to do that?
0: I had a a teacher named Mr. Tucker who identified this container by the art room that had a black it was a case that was covered up and it was actually he he opened a frame and put glass in it and he put a title over the top of it that said picture of the week and i had picture of the week a lot it was my first real success i never had a success before it was fantastic
2: That's amazing. I've been watching the great British baking show, and I love when they appoint the um, baker of the week, the star baker. (laughs) It reminds me of that. (laughs) Suddenly people transform. They sort of become actualized in some way, and it's such a joy to see that in people's faces. Tell us more about what it was like when you first moved to New York. You're not a native New Yorker, yet you are one of the Few designers that can legitimately say has created the visual language of our great city. What did you think about New York when you first got here, and how has your experience changed over time? Well, I went to
0: school in Philadelphia, which was bigger than the Washington area where I grew up. And New York was just bigger than Philadelphia. The buildings were bigger, the uh, amount of public transportation was greater. The connection to the city and the various boroughs was easier. And there was just more. There was more. It was noisy. It was complicated. It was exciting. There was stuff everywhere. You couldn't walk down a street without seeing something that struck your eye in some way or form. Even in the worst, actually the 70s, which were, you know, New York's Nader, I found it fantastic. I even loved a good garbage strike, I have to admit.
2: (laughs) I spent a lot of time in Manhattan in the 70s as well. My dad lived in the West Village and I just found it endlessly fascinating. And I still do, but I especially loved the colorful New York Post headlines and the garbage strikes and the protests that all felt so alive to me and so necessary. Well, to, be, to be in my 20s at that point was fantastic. And I was in the music business.
0: I mean, so, so what could be better? And I didn't even know I had a great job. I was so idiotic at that moment in time, but it it was exciting and I still draw from it.
2: After you graduated from Tyler College in 1970, you moved to New York with a portfolio and $50. And when you first told your mother you were going to do this, she said, oh, Paula, don't do anything like that. That sounds like it takes talent. So I have two questions. What made you decide to go anyway? And two, based on what you've just said, how did you not realize that you had the great job you had?
0: Well, I didn't get the great job I had initially. When I moved to New York, first I lived with some friends actually on a farm in in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. And I lived there until I got a job. And I was even freelancing early. I began designing book jackets and did illustrations. My portfolio was half illustration based. And then I moved into the city. I had met Some girlfriends and took an apartment with them and moved into New York. You know, it didn't, $50 was probably like $150 back then, maybe two, you know, so it wasn't like I was totally broke. I really worked for those $50. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) But I moved back, I moved back into the city and I felt like my life began. And I worked doing children's books for about a year and a half. And then my boss left and he, recommended me to the director of the advertising department of CBS Records, which were record ads, not covers. And I began designing ads for records and they went into these trade publications. So they happened very quickly. I had a copywriter partner. We closed ads every Wednesday. I learned everything I needed to learn about politics and decision making in corporations from that experience. And I, after a year and a half, was hired by a man named Bob Defferin at Atlantic Records to do the ads there. But they had the cover department in the same department. So I began designing record covers. And this was, what was it, in 1973 and 74. And the covers are still around. When I'm in a car, if you know Mingus 1 and 2 come up, there's the cover I designed in 1973. They tell you this stuff is transient and doesn't last. It's not true. Well,
2: what's so interesting about covers, as opposed to so much else in design, is that those covers do last forever. Everything else gets redesigned, but Boston's great album that you designed is <laughs> oh, sh- never going to be redesigned. It's that iconic. You know, neither will tra- Mingus 1 and 2. I mean, they are... Fixed moments in time that no one ever thinks about redesigning. I hadn't really thought about that until now. Book, book covers get redesigned all the time.
0: All the time. Now, record covers don't. And what was interesting for me, even about the Mingus cover, was that when it was designed as a 12 by 12 album, and it, when it moved into the CD phase of being this smaller thing inside a plastic package... The Atlantic Records, at that point, it was a classic album, and they made the determination to fold the actual printed cover at real size into quarters and putting it into the uh, plastic that way. And that's the kind of reverence they would have for those kinds of creations that, that last a long time. And I find that the albums that I designed... Almost all of them around, I have to go back and buy them on eBay. My staff and people who know me collect them. I'll get an email saying, oh, I just found another one. And, you know, they'll be in some place like Brazil or uh, Australia. And they'll go into some old record store and there they are. And it's sort of charming.
2: You've been at Pentagram now for 30 years. What keeps you there?
0: I like it. It's a good place for a designer to work. It was designed that way. It's a design to business. It was designed about the idea that individual designers on their own never have much security. You know, they deal with the ebb and flow of business and they may work their whole life dedicated to their craft and find themselves Retiring and trying to sell their drawing tape. And what Pentagram was, was a collective. And it's the notion that designers can come together and share expenses and own the business equally and begin to build something that establishes a kind of equity in the nature of the way it's constructed. It's pretty frugal. I'm sure you can do better if you have another company buy you and pay you out. But, but that's disruptive to the, co- the communal group, which is where the fun is. So that's what's great about it. And also you compete with your partners. They're all talented and they scare the hell out of you because all, they all get better
2: all the time. Has your creative process, if you have one, changed over the arc of your career? No. <laughs> I
0: can't say that it has. I mean, initially there's something put before me. And I have to find out about it and I have to learn about it and I have to question it and I have to sort of kick it around and and figure out who it matters to, why it matters. What does an audience think about it? What are the expectations? All of those things that we all do. And then I sort of sleep on it and I begin to wake up with ideas, but they don't they don't come instantaneously, but they they come I would say in relationship to when I'm absorbing the information in some capacity, like within
2: that week. You've created some of the most memorable and longest lasting brand identities for some of the world's biggest businesses and cultural institutions. And I'm wondering how you define the concept of identity and if you believe your own sense of identity has grown through your work. Hmm, That's interesting.
0: You're talking about an identity, not a logo, which is the way I refer to it. But the word logo itself is revealing in thinking about an identity. If you take the word logo and you translate it back to Aristotle, who is talking about it in a legal sense, and the word was logos, L-O-G-O-S, I think in Greek, it meant how to make an argument about something. In other words, the basis was really a form of persuasion, almost like, I guess, advertising, you could say, but not quite in that way. It was more persuasive. And the notion would be that within that argument, you made something recognizable and understood. And that's, that's theoretically what an identity does. Whether it's a logo or a kit of parts or a methodology of addressing an audience in some capacity, it makes things recognizable and understood. So you you can, in a visual context or even in the written word context, look at it and say, I know what that is.
2: Do you feel that social media has changed the graphic design industry and the way non-designers experience graphic design?
0: I think so, probably massively. But I also think it's it could be temporary, like all things that seem to move very quickly, move very quickly, and go away very quickly. So, one doesn't really know. It's hard for me to even remember when there was an Instagram, but it wasn't all that long. It ago.
2: wasn't. It's kind of amazing how it shifted and how how just our experience with graphic design and the public, so to speak, have changed since. Everyone and anyone now has an opinion and a voice and a point of view for both good and bad.
0: It speeds everything up, it complicates everything, and you sort of forget what was it, what was there before, which was a lot longer time right. than that. It's uh I think I think the thing with Instagram that is appealing is the idea that if you're successful with it. And, you know, I think Pentagram has something like 850,000 followers on Instagram. And that's pretty serious for a a design firm. I mean, who cares that much? I didn't know 850,000 people would care about that. But the reality is that you make an impact for a second. It's like a nanosecond. So it's not a real impact. It's an impact for that nanosecond. And that's dangerous when, when you believe it. And what's more dangerous is if it's a message that is a bad message, that for that nanosecond can do a huge amount yeah. of damage.
2: Do you see any way to counteract that?
0: I'm just going to have to wait for it to die like everything else. You know, yeah. I mean, there have been so many different forms of movements, as you well know, because you came out of one of them. Remember the blogosphere?
1: And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and how, how
0: people were arguing and fighting and then making up and reconciling and actually very good writing came out of that. That was the opposite side. And then, of course, everybody got lazy because you found something. If you could tweet, you didn't have to write all those characters.
2: Yeah, which is unfortunate because some of that writing was really special. But it wasn't
0: all that long ago. And that was huge.
2: It felt like the center of the universe at the time. But for
0: people who, you know, you walk into the world the way you walk into it, and you learn things in the honor that you confront them, and it takes a long time to have any kind of perspective about what came before. So I think that to a degree, what's here is really here until it isn't.
2: Paula, speaking of what's here, you designed a poster for this year's Ode to New York City poster campaign, which is wonderful. Tell us about your design and what inspired you to create what you create.
0: Well, I can't pretend like it took a long time. I read the brief. It said, what in the period of COVID has, you know, gotten you to think about New York City and and how could it be improved in the future? Because these things occurred during covid and some of them were horrible and some of them were terrific and for me there it was an easy answer because my excitement in new york without traffic was immense i mean i suddenly i could take a walk from the east side to the west side and be aware of like slopes ordinarily you do you do a cross town ro- walk you don't think you're going uphill or downhill But all of a sudden, because the traffic wasn't there, because you were dealing with a whole different perspective of how to see the town that you walk through every day, it was really miraculous. I remember I lived near Madison Square Park and I walked from my apartment on 26th Street to Park Avenue and 20th Street every day of the week and didn't realize there was an incline on one side of Broadway and the other even though I I passed it every day of my life for all these years. And, you know, that's sort of astounding, because the beauty of it, and then, of course, being really able to look at all the architecture, and I have to go back to Madison Square Park, where I live, where the buildings are phenomenal. But I got to see the bottoms in relationship to the tops. Usually, there was a truck passing, I never could see that, you know, there were, there were things in the way. And I thought, why? Why does the traffic have to be here? Can't they deliver at one point in the morning and then you know, get out of there? I don't need my car. We don't have to take it. There are probably ways we could get rid of that. What a different city. What a less polluted city. What a less noisy city. You know, how happy we'd be. I could see on people's faces when they finally ventured outside, even if they had masks on, I could see sort of like the delight in the eyes at the point that COVID wasn't really, really scary, scary, scary anymore. And, and we sort of saw the vaccine on the way and I saw the empty streets and the delight and the people walking in them. Some of them was to just purely be outside and some of it was what you were seeing. You saw it for the first time.
2: It was great. Paula, thank you so much for joining me here today on the mic. For all of our listeners, Paula's poster can be found on nycbydesign.org. It's going to be a collector's item. If you would stick around for a bit, I'd love to have you rejoin our conversation after I chat with the great Julian Alexander. I'm so thrilled to welcome our next guest, Julian Alexander, a Grammy Award-winning art director and founder of Brooklyn-based design studio Slang, Inc. His iconic album artwork can be seen on packages that have sold over 100 million copies worldwide. In 2020, Julian started the Supremacy Project, which addresses the systematic oppression and violence BIPOC communities are fighting to end through art. Julian, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me
2: love to hear a little bit more about how you came to design and and your journey in the world of design. What was it that first drew you to the industry?
1: It was a teacher, um, a, a college professor I had who introduced me to graphic design. I grew up with an interest in art. I always loved drawing and I wanted to be an artist, but I was scared I would be a starving artist. So I kind of Tucked that away a little bit and treated it more like a hobby. And I, I met someone. I was fortunate enough to come by um, a teacher uh, who taught an art class at University of Connecticut, where I went. And she, you know, I would just do little weird things. And she was like, "I think you'd be good at graphic design." To which I responded, "What's that?" And she told me what it was, and she helped me get a portfolio together so I could apply to art school. So it's literally a teacher who directed me to design. And and I felt it was secure because I could be an artist and have a job.
2: It's interesting. I know Paula's teachers also influenced her approach to drawing with typography. And if it weren't for a teacher that I had in college, I actually don't even know what I would have done with my life. It's quite extraordinary how our teachers really do help shape our lives. Big shout out to all the teachers out there. You also designed a poster for the NYC by Design collection this year. Your poster has a very specific, very important backstory. And I'm wondering if you can share that with us.
1: There was a moment in the pandemic where a lot of attention was focused on injustice, on people of color at the hands of police, specifically George Floyd's murder. And, you know, living in Brooklyn and living near the Barclays Center, which was a hub for a lot of things that were happening, protests and and even more police violence that's in my neighborhood. It's like right up the street, right up the street from my house. So I would turn on the news and see national news that's happening outside my door. I had concern for myself. I had concern for my family because this is, you know, this is where we have to pass through to go to the grocery store or go wherever. And. I wasn't compelled to go outside and protest in that way. I've decided that I wanted, I needed to say something that was important, but I wanted to just dive into my creative skill set and use my voice for something that I just felt was impactful. And, and I, I just had an urgency to say something. And that was the best way that I could use my voice in the moment was by making this supremacy, this mural that essentially used my skill set and my understanding of branding to treat white supremacy as a brand and using familiar brand language, also paying homage to Barbara Kruger and her work and just everything that's in my wheelhouse and what I understand, I wanted to use that to speak about the moment that we were in. There's something that was interesting to me about it as well, because it was both timely and timeless. That piece of art that was created could be 60 years old. It could be older than that, but it still feels relevant and impactful. So and that's what drove me to create the original piece of art that my Ode to New York poster is based on.
2: Talk a little bit more, if you can, about the intersection of timely and timeless. That's absolutely evident in your work, but something that is extremely difficult to be able to create, something that is both of the moment and then of all moments Is there a way in which you approach your work to achieve that type of result? Or do you feel like that just happened by accident?
1: It's definitely not an accident, but I don't think there's a formula for creating it. So I think something that is consistent in all of the work that I do is I try and really authentically understand what things are about and what's unique about them and and try and express Whatever it is that I'm trying to communicate, I try and get to the essence of that point. And I think that that is the thing that kind of helps create longevity, create long-lasting work. That's the timeless part. The timely part has to do with when the work is introduced to people. It was that particular mural, these murals, the first one that I did had an image of police in riot gear. It was released at the time that police were in riot gear around the country. The next piece that I introduced, which is in the Ode to New York poster, is one of Mount Rushmore with the word supremacy on it. But that work was introduced at the time that we were in election cycle. So like looking back, I don't know that it feels as timely. It may feel timeless, but also at that moment and just what the conversation is and help contextualize the work and makes it timely.
2: Your poster, your O2 New York City poster, Home, you just talked about it briefly. It features a detail from the Brooklyn installation, the 2020 Brooklyn installation. The full name is Supremacy, Who Protects Me From You? And at the time, the original work was defaced and then restored and then defaced and then restored by both opponents and supporters of its message. Did this response, this sort of engagement with your piece, surprise you?
1: no it it didn't surprise me because you know living in New York City, I think people tend to think we we claim ownership we're like it's my New York and whatever your whatever your perspective is, you think that's what New York is about, but to see how people respond to police violence or your neighbors or people that you're you know in your community or in the election cycle, some things that people respond to or or when conversations get very serious and and people express their viewpoints, we realize that just like any other place, we're not one way here. People think of it as a very liberal city. I've walked not far from my house and seen blue Lives Matter signs hanging you know fl- flags flying just like I see Black Lives Matter <laughs> posters in people's windows. so I did not think that the work would just automatically be embraced and and everyone would love it. I didn't think everyone would hate it either, but I was really interested in seeing what happens. And I kind of felt like when the work did get defaced, it felt like, to me, it felt like checkmate in a way. It's kind of like, I'm showing you that there's a little, there's an issue here or or people have different opinions and this is evidence of it. So I wasn't really compelled to feel like I had to, it had to exist one way. When I think, when it lives with the, with the defacement or or evidence of different points of view, I think it strengthens the work and it leaves it with something else. And I, I find it to be very compelling.
2: You added the word home in Morse code to give context to the polarity that exists in our cities, in the country, and in the world. And the original work evolved into a living dialogue. And your poster was created to continue that conversation. What made you decide to use Morse code?
1: I find it to be beautiful. I love typography. You spoke about typography. My introduction to typography is graffiti. So that's when I first started to study letter forms. And I just find it compelling that letters are visual symbols that we associate with sounds that we then put together to make words. And when I encounter letters that I can't read, I just really get lost in their shapes. And Morse code is so simple. And so I, I like the the beauty of it. I can't read it. You know, I have to translate it every time. I can't but that's the thing too. You're not supposed to read it. You're supposed to hear it or see it. It's a language that's not even really supposed to be read off of paper like that. So I found that interesting. I also have this thing where I'm fascinated by language that fades out. So I read something years ago about children not being taught cursive in school because they need that time to learn how to type because that's how we communicate now. So to think of written language that has a time limit or expires, I find it to be really interesting. And most people will look at the poster and not realize that, that those are letter forms. But that's cool with me too. It just becomes a design element. And strangely enough, the word home is completely symmetrical. It's four dots, three dashes, two dashes, and then one dot. So it just kind of looks like a design element. So I don't think you have to be able to read it to appreciate it, but I think that there becomes something else that's more fascinating there if you dig a little bit deeper. And, and again, it's the word home is there because this place that we call home has these diverging opinions and we have to figure out how we're going to navigate this, because it it should not remain the way that it is. Things need to be improved.
2: Jillian, one thing that fascinated me as I was doing my research in preparation for today's show was the notion of you're using the word you. So for example, in your supremacy project, the subtitle is who protects me from you. You did another project that's called I Am You for Freedoms. Talk about the relationship you have to the notion of sort of reflecting back on people, who they are or who they want to be.
1: That's an interesting question, just because I, I think that's a good question. I don't think about it in those terms. But I think there's a lot of, particularly with this racial police violence, things like this, there's a lot of victim blaming. There's like, well, what was this person doing? What was that person doing? Well, I'm minding my business. You're the problem. So who protects me from you? Like, you know, why is it inherently thought that, you know, why, why do I have to defend myself? I think there's a question. Really, I'm questioning institutions. And when the you, it is individual, but I'm really talking much bigger than you as the individual. Me and you are both in reference to much larger groups. Because I think even if we talk about we, that's a collection of me. It's a, it's a whole bunch of individuals in there. So when I say me, I'm not even talking about me personally. Me and everybody like me. And you, and everybody like you, if you're a part of the problem, if you're an offender, if you're perpetrating violence on people, if you're upholding these systems that treat people unfairly and, and you know oppress people, That's the you that I'm talking to. And I I think, you know, you asked just about my my tendency to kind of reflect things back. I think that's really important because there's nothing wrong with me. I want to be who I am. I want my kids to be who I am. And I want them to be able to be themselves and be safe while doing it. So I'm not concerned about them. I'm concerned about what could happen to them because of how you see them. They don't need to change themselves. I don't need to change myself.
2: I'm married to a person of color and one thing that i hear people ask her a lot is how as white people in particular how what what can we do better and and i think that it's an unfair question because that puts the person who's being asked that question in the role of having to teach which is doing more work than they were even having to do and so i i do really question, you know, how we're ever going to be able to get to a place where we aren't experiencing the microaggressions, where people of color aren't experiencing microaggressions every single day. Just the number of people that ask us when we go someplace together, are you guys together? You know, that never happened when I was not with a person that wasn't of color. It only happens when I'm with a person of color. And just that question alone is is, Terrifying. Talk about the role that New York City has in your work. You have done quite a lot of street art, album covers, branding, protest work. And I'm wondering how the notion of being a a New Yorker is embedded in your work, if it is. It feels so much like it is, but I, I wanted to sort of get your perspective.
1: I'm not a native New Yorker, but New York is my home. It's the place I've lived the longest, it's where I've started, my family It's where I'm comfortable. And the thing about New York that I think is just present in my work always is just there's constant inspiration. I look outside, I walk outside. I just encounter all sorts of unexpected and amazing things often. Like I, it would take a great deal of effort to not find something that inspires me. It's hard for me to just walk to the corner store and not like take a picture or like some corner of a sign or whatever. It plays a role in my work just because it I stay inspired and and I think that f- fuels my creativity. I would like to think that I can carry that with me wherever I am or find other inspiration if i'm in in different places but But I appreciate that New York has nurtured me to this point so so it stays present in that way.
2: I'd I'd like to ask Paula to rejoin us. I've been so excited thinking about talking to you both because your your work, the arc of of the visual language that you've both created in some ways really does overlap in that you've both done iconic album covers, you've both created iconic protest work, you've both created really beautiful branding. And so I I thought it would be fun to have this conversation together talking about the intersections of your work and the power of design. So my first question is something you both have in common is a passion for words and typography. Paula also did an incredible piece with the word you in it. And and I was just astounded as I was thinking about the intersections of both of your bodies of work. What do you see as the relationship between language and image? And if you can talk about your approach in working with both. Paula, you first.
0: Well, language is everything. I mean, for me, you can use words to create impressions. You can use words to contradict norms. You can ask questions that become abstractions or tell a narrative. You can do all of this. It's part of the palette. And my tools are always typography. So it, it is, it's something that is... Uh, communicative, evocative. It can create controversy. It can soothe, it can do a variety of things. And that you're, whatever you're expressing is immediately understood by use of words, where with with imagery, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. But I think that, that and I think you were talking about my you, me poster. Okay. So that that's like a classic example of that, because when you see the words that are sort of sort of nestled into each other and yet very clearly separated by borders it says more about relationships of everything men and women women and women humanity in general races everything you come together and then you create these boundaries but you can see that purely in typography i don't know how i'd ever be able to tell that story without typography
2: Doing the research for this show, I was thinking about what it would be like to do an exhibition where you had two designers or and artists sort of speaking to each other through the work. And thought that the two of you would sort of be amazing to have that dialogue with just your body of work.
1: Yeah. My body of work is not near where yours is. Oh,
2: that's nonsense. So that's not like I'm there. Well no one's is Julian. You know, no one's in. We're we're talking to the queen here. There's no one body of work that compares. But but in any case, I think that there's some really, really interesting overlaps. You know, I don't do the booking for this show. So I think that the NYC by design folks did a masterful job in in this one, I have to say. So Julian, what about you? Talk about the relationship between language and image. Do you do you work with them sort of equally as you're creating something, or do you start with one and then bring in the other?
1: It's an interesting question. I think it's hard to add to what Paula says there because I completely agree, but what I will say, I'll tell you something that um, is really interesting based on the earlier conversation where you were talking about social media. I tend to think that, that the imagery speaks for itself. I don't like to explain my work at all. I like to just kind of put it out and let it be what it is. There are many times when I would take pictures on Instagram and just post them and I wouldn't, there's no caption. I'm like, this is just what I'm feeling today. And a friend of mine pulled me to the side one day. He's like, why are you posting pictures of doors? And I'm like, I like the, it's the letters that are hand painted that are like bad on there. He's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be looking at. So I was like, Without the words, as Paula said, it it just doesn't, you know, certain things don't connect. It's kind of like leading the viewer, leading their eye to where you want them to focus or creating confusion. Imagine I just posted, had a picture of a yellow balloon and the word said tomato. You would just be confused, you know, like it it, it just becomes compelling. So I think it's it's really a way of, yes, it's, it just becomes a way of kind of, Contextualizing and, and leading the viewer to where you want them to go, or, or kind of forcing a conversation or changing a perception. So, I do think that they work really well together, and I find that in my art practice now, a lot I'm including words because I don't want to, you know, I, I tended to separate my graphic design work from my personal design work. And I'm like, why am I abandoning these things that I understand that work and I think are a part of my work? So words are very much a part of how I see art. And they they give context. You put something in Comic Sans versus Helvetica versus a script type. even, Even the way we present the words have a lot to do with how they're received.
2: You both have very vibrant art practices and design practices. Do you see them as one practice or do you see them as separate practices?
0: Well, I I see them as completely opposite in so many ways in that it has more to do with me in the role, but I don't think that there's a definition of art that's defined by the practice. You can make terrific paintings or terrible paintings. You can make terrific graphic design or terrible graphic design. Nothing is excluded in either side. It's not about value judgments. For me... The difference is that in the work that's termed fine art is a, a different business than the work that's graphic design. As a, as a fine artist, I, I paint maps and I paint them out of scale and they're loaded with information. And if I was gonna describe what they're doing, it's really abstract expressionist information. It's stuff that you have a feeling about and the maps are sort of right, but their, their goal is more to ask questions than give you answers. I have two galleries now, one for prints and one for paintings. I give them the galleries. They either do something with them or they don't. They either sell or they don't. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no reward. Sometimes they're commissions, which is more like the other the other side. Graphic design is really clear. There's a thing you're going to make. There's a fee attached to it. There's a series of expectations, and you're resolving those, those expectations. I do not believe that one is better than the other or sometimes even purer than the other. I think that they're different businesses and that that's okay and that the point is the making. As long as you're clear about what your role is in the situation, it's not complicated at all. There are paintings I won't make and there are designs I won't do. And, and I'm clear about that too. And, you know, the sort of things I won't work for and certain ways in the painting industry, I won't behave because that's personal ethics. But within the, within the confines of both businesses, as a matter of fact, the only time I ever really was in a lawsuit with somebody was with my first gallery. They were much more corrupt than anybody ever worked with in a corporate life. So, you know, there you are. I don't, I don't know if that, that is an analogy of anything. But in fact, they're just different and they're fine.
2: I wrote down that your paintings ask questions. So I'm wondering if design is sort of providing answers.
0: Yes, mostly. That's its, that's its role. And it, you, it, design can confuse you if that's what's desired in that situation. But if it confuses you by accident, that's not so good. You know, in other words, if, you, if you're walking across the street and it's not telling you that, that you got to look both ways or what have you, then it's not doing its job. But it also can be
2: deliberately surprising or shocking or all of those things. Julian, what about you? How do you view your two practices or two facets of your
1: practice? For me, I'm, I'm more protective of my personal artwork and just because i i don't have places to share it or like a a outlet for it so sometimes it's almost i love my client work the things that i'm very selective about what i will take on so i tend to really be connected to the things that i'm doing however you know my, my personal work when i'm when I'm creating things, I don't show it to anyone. I'm, it's very It's very much of an insular thing. Like, I don't care if you think this should be red or bigger or over there. Like, this is, it's mine. <laughs> and then I'll let you see it. And then we could talk about whether you like it or not. But it's done. You know, so it's, it's very much like an outlet for me and something that I just protect in a different way. And I think a lot of that has to do with my design work. It's so collaborative. I love working with other people who have different skill sets and building the team. So this one is just very different. And that's the other thing. And I agree. You know, Paula said something that really resonated about just like not having a hierarchy. One is not of greater value than the other. and And I do. There's been a shift with me where I look at it. I made the distinction between graphic design work and my personal art. But it's all art. You know, like I I try to not make that delineation. Part of it is self-preservation because if I approach some of my client work as artwork, I'm gonna be resistant to what my client wants that I don't want to do. And I I recognize that it doesn't work that way, but I've gotten this theory now where I look at artists like doctors, like you'll be like, there's a podiatrist, optometrist, this and that. And I think that as creatives, we fill those roles. There's a graphic designer, there's an architect, there's this, there's that, there's a furniture designer. We're all artists. We all create things that are unique to us and what we bring to those solutions that we create. That's a little bit of how I view it at this point.
2: Yeah, the the late, great Massimo Vignelli used a doctor analogy when talking about how many options he provided his clients when designing something and said that he only liked to present one idea. Because when (laughs) you go to a doctor, you're not asking for three diagnoses. You just want to have your problem solved. And- he was the expert and here was how your problem was solved. Take it or leave it. I kind of I respect it. I respect that too. <laughs> I've never gotten to that place but I totally respect it. For young designers that are listening, what advice would you give them for those that are beginning their careers in New York specifically?
0: The tell them a career is a long time and that that the decisions they make, should be probably driven with what it is they want to make and how they want to make it and all that they can learn initially so they can do that later. And that I've been designing, I'm a practicing designer for 50 years. It's a long time. And you go through lots of phases and it's important to work in places that you feel like you're learning something and that you're allowed to change and grow. And that's the whole joy of it.
2: Yeah, I think that one of the drawbacks that social media perpetuates is the notion of immediacy. You know, you put something out and there's an immediate reaction and an immediate sort of judgment. And I think great careers are sort of the opposite of that, where they're you're slowly growing and evolving and the, the immediacy can, can feel wonderful in the moment, but that fades. And the idea of sort of slowly walking up the mountain as opposed to racing up, I think is, is, is something that people don't think about so much anymore. They just want, you know, it's young guns and 30 and to 30 and 40 and to 40. And those, those goalposts feel very, I don't know, they feel very dangerous in some ways.
0: You know, that that chart I made of the career yes. careers of a designer, that in the early stages of your career, you I sort of divided them into two categories. You're sort of either a wunderkind or you're a peon, depending upon the situation. If you've entered the field, and you know, you're at the bottom of the barrel, as you deserve, probably. Yeah. The wunderkind role is much more dangerous because the burnout is greater and that you peak younger. And it's hard from that. I've I've seen it happen too many times. And it it isn't anything that one necessarily controls. But with the sort of assumptions of of an Instagram society, it may be even harder to overcome because it happens quicker. And it's, you know, essentially, I think being being any kind of an artist is a, a long period of learning and absorbing and trying and changing and broadening and all those things. And that the, the burnout can be disastrous for that.
2: Julian, what about you? Any advice for the young New Yorkers that are working in the design field? Any advice for them?
1: I think it's important to do your best to understand balance in your work and your career, and also just bring yourself to your work. I I look at it in a way where people who hire you, they can hire anybody that they can afford to hire. They're not hiring you for your ability to use the programs. They're hiring you for your vision, your ability, and what you bring to things. And I think people have to understand what they offer and and the perspectives that they bring. I think that's really important, not just for young designers, but for people.
2: One last question for you both before we close the show. The Ode to New York City poster collection this year was centered around the theme of Our Future City. What are your hopes for this great, great city of ours moving forward?
1: I hope the trains don't (laughs) go back to being as crowded as as they were. Um, (laughs) I was on the train the other day. (laughs) Right. Very (laughs) practical. That's a good one. I was like, I I think we're kind of back and I don't like that so much. Um, <laughs> on the subway, at least. But no, I, I just want us to continue to be, you know, we're, we're at a place where we've, we're navigating some very difficult times on many levels. And I think it's important to just kind of keep the spirit of what makes New York, New York, this unique place that's a melting pot that brings people together to interact with one another, not just tolerate or be near. You
2: are both extraordinary. And it's, it's been a real honor to talk with you both today. Join me next month to talk even more design on the mic. Follow NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And subscribe to the newsletter for the latest in New York City by Design.
1: But embrace one another. And I hope we can return to that and continue striving to do that better. Thank you,
2: Julian. Paula...